This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you again by the New York Times. Right now, you can get digital access to the world's greatest newspaper for only $1 a week. That's $4 a month. $4 for the best news coverage, journalism, and editorials. What else can you get for $4 a month? Today, it is more important than ever that we get our news from a proper source and not a random clickbait that we see in our social media feeds. So why not get it from the best? Head on over to nytimes.com to get started. Before we get started on this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I guess it's been a while since I've done one of these. Um, there's a lot that's been going on in my life, and for the first time ever in one of these episodes, I'm not reading from something that I've written. I'm just sitting here talking to everyone listening. Um, I have received so many emails and letters and and just wonderful communication from people that listen to this show. and. I'm sorry that I've been selfish and haven't been making it because I realize now with the the sheer amount of people that have been trying to contact me, um, just asking if I'm okay. I mean, if you spend a year putting an episode a week out and then all of a sudden you retract from that a little bit, I guess a lot of you were worried um, about me. I'm fine. I'm going through a lot of really fucking weird stuff in my life right now. I just opened a market. If you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that. I opened a market with Tim, who produces the show, actually. Uh, I'm not cooking right now. We're focusing on the fine food market, and I want to make this podcast keep going. I'm cooking a ton at home. Let's be fair. Um, I'm getting divorced. That's fascinating and and a weird experience. Um, I'm also with someone that treats me amazingly well and I'm, I'm really, really happy. So it's it's been a very strange few months and especially with coronavirus and with everything that's going on in the world, it's been a very bizarre time to be alive. And I'm finding it harder and harder to talk about restaurants because nobody knows what's going on with restaurants. And I mean like you read the news every day and they're opening and then they're closing and where I live in Ontario which is kind of my frame of reference like we're allowed to have uh, people on patios but you can't have people inside yet but then that just changed on Friday so where you can have 50% capacity inside your restaurant um, I don't know how restaurants are going to survive to be honest with you because rent's not being decreased by 50% and I hope that people are going out to restaurants and I hope that people are you know, trying to support when they can, but I think there also has to be some sense of realization that a lot of people don't have a lot of money right now. A lot of people don't have expendable income and a lot of people don't have, you know, the time or the nerve to go sit in a restaurant and be fed. And so for all the cooks listening to this and all the chefs listening to this, I wish you nothing but the best. I honestly, I I don't know how you're doing it. The stress everything it's it's a lot there's a lot going on um for everyone who isn't in the industry that listens to this just if you can go and support a restaurant and if you can't you can't um 
it's the world's crazy. The world's completely mad. I mean, the States, I don't even know what's going on there. But, you know, people all around the world listen to this show. They listen to me ramble on about random stuff that I find fascinating. And in the last few weeks, like places like South Africa and Australia and Finland and Germany and the US, like have all been listening to it so, so much. And so to everyone around the world, um, I know that everyone's going through stuff and I know that everybody is stressed and, and nobody really knows what's happening and the world is changing again. But I appreciate the support from everybody so much and I truly, truly cannot tell you how much it means to me. Um, it feels weird to say this word, but I think I have the best fans on the planet. So I'm going to make more podcasts and I'm going to be doing them as much as I can. And you'll notice that they're not really about restaurants right now because there's not really much to talk about um, that you haven't heard already and or going through. If you want to write into me, you can send everything to uh, let's talk about chef at gmail.com or you can write to me on Instagram at chef Brian Clark. I do have a let's talk about chef Instagram account, but again, I don't, I basically got it so that no one else could take it. Um, so you can reach me a lot faster uh, at my own at chef Brian Clark. That's enough from me. Uh, we're going to get right into this week's episode of let's talk about chef. And wherever you are, I hope you're doing well. Cheers. It's the late 1700s and you're outside in your garden working your land. It's been relentlessly warm the past few days. Humidity and sun beat your body down, and all you want to do is jump into the river to cool off, but you press on. Your family relies on you for the money that you make, tending to your farm. The corn is at least enjoying the sun. It's grown about a half a foot in what seems like an afternoon. The tomatoes are starting to turn their hundreds of different shades of red. The melons are still small, but in a few weeks they will be ripe enough for picking, and then you'll load up the lot of it and head to the market to sell it all. You sit up to wipe off the sweat from your forehead and look across your fields. The other workers are all staring off in the same direction, holding their hands up to shield their eyes from the sun. One of them is pointing at something you can't make out. You stare in the direction he's pointing and you can slowly start to see on the horizon a black cloud that's moving quickly. There's a humming sound off in the distance. It's uncomfortable. It's like the air is filling with the noise. And as you watch, the cloud starts to grow and grow, spreading at impossible speed until it's filling up the entire sky. The noise is louder and louder, making your bones shake and your head dizzy with vibration. Your workers start to scream and run for the farmhouse. You still don't know what that cloud is, and you watch in horror as the sun begins to disappear. It's getting dark. A lone grasshopper falls from the sky and lands on your shoulder. You look at it, but it seems different than a normal grasshopper. Then you realize in horror that the cloud isn't a cloud. The cloud is billions and billions of locusts. Locusts bearing down on your farm, filling the sky, and now they are falling down onto your fields. You turn to run to the house, just making it across the front porch as the cloud explodes onto your land like a bomb. 
The locusts are relentless. They beat at the windows, come through the chimney, and fill every available space. You can just make out the cornfield through a crack in the thousands of bugs on the kitchen window. A solid mass is covering everything you can see, rolling like a black ocean. They seem to be possessed, sent to destroy, sent to devour anything and everything in their path, and you pray to God to save you. You scream for help as more and more of them come flooding through an open window. The sound is unbearable. And then, as quickly as they came, they leave. The cloud rises from the fields and your home and heads off. The sound that drove you nearly insane starts to disappear. You open your eyes and step towards the door, where only a few minutes before lush fields of vegetables covered everything, there is only dirt. It's all gone. The locusts ate it all. Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about the absolute unstoppable fury and food devastation of locusts. Locusts have been feared and also revered all throughout history. These small grasshoppers about the size of a paperclip usually live solitary lives. But during dry spells, these solo living insects are forced into groups where there is water and grass. The fact is, grasshoppers aren't supposed to be in close proximity to one another. They are meant to live alone. So when these insects are packed together, the sudden crowding releases serotonin into their central nervous system, that changes them to be more sociable and causes them to make rapid movements. When rains eventually return and plants and water are abundant, the now locusts start to breed in massive numbers, and they become even more packed together, more aggressive, and more hungry. After a few weeks of intense breeding, they are no longer grasshoppers. Their color has changed, their brains have grown bigger, their endurance has risen, and so has their appetite. They are essentially zombies. At some point, the locusts will now have devoured everything in their immediate area. They eat and eat, and then it's time to find more food, and so they rise from the lands where they were born and start to swarm. Swarms can be billions strong and travel up to 81 miles a day, eating everything in their path. The most dangerous type of locust is a desert locust found in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. Their habitat is 6 million square miles, or 30 countries if it's during a quiet period. 
If the locusts are swarming, however, they can spread to cover over 60 countries in search for food, covering a fifth of the Earth's surface and threaten the lives and food of over 10% of all humans. A desert locust swarm can cover 460 square miles, and they can pack together in numbers up to 80 million insects in the area the size of a football field. A swarm this size could eat 423 million pounds of plants a day. The most dangerous aspect of a locust swarm is how much they can eat, with each bug capable of ingesting its own weight in produce. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but to put that into perspective, a locust swarm the size of Paris, France, can eat the same amount of food in one day as half the population of France. The worst locust plague in all of history was not in Africa. It wasn't in the Middle East, and it was in the year 1874 in Middle America. The Colorado Rocky Mountain locust normally lives along the dry eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains from the southern tip of British Columbia, Canada, down through Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, and western Dakota. That year, as the summer heated up, eggs hatched from the egg pods laid the year before. By the time the drought had ended, a swarm of 120 billion locusts cut a path across America 100 miles all the way to Texas. In America at that time, the Homestead Act of 1862, the end of the Civil War, and the completion of the first intercontinental railroad meant that tens of thousands of Americans had moved to the Midwest, planting crops on their farms and trying to raise their families. They already had to deal with bad soil, droughts, and floods, but nothing prepared them for the swarm. The unusually hard winter of 1873 to 1874 and the dry summer meant that the swarm was at a fever pitch by the time it lifted off of the mountains and made their way towards the fields. One woman wrote in her journal, The grasses seemed to wither, and the cattle bunched up near the creek and the well, and no air seemed to stir the leaves on the trees. All of nature seemed still, and then they came. They looked like a great white glistening cloud, for their wings caught the sunshine on them and made them look like a cloud of white vapor. It seemed as if we were in a big snowstorm, where the air was filled with enormous sized flakes. In some places, the mass of locusts blocked out the sun for up to six hours. And when the locusts descended, they covered every shrub, plant, and tree, breaking branches with their combined weight. They flattened and devoured corn stalks and reaped entire fields of grain. They consumed only the most succulent bits of the wheat crop, letting the rest rot on the ground. After the locusts destroyed the fields and all of the trees, they invaded the farmers' houses, devouring barrels of grain and flour, eating through the cupboards, only ignoring the food that was stored into metal containers. They shredded through curtains, clothing, and bedsheets. The New York Times wrote in an article that the air was literally alive with them. They beat against the houses, swarmed in the windows, covered passing trains. They worked as if sent to destroy. Terrified children fled before the swarms. And one Kansas pioneer wrote of a young wife awaiting her first child in the absence of her husband, who had gone insane from fear, had the clothes literally eaten off of her back. She'd been wearing a dress with a green stripe. The locust covered her body, eating the green stripe that ran along the side of the dress, mistaking it for vegetation in their endless and horrific hunger. The swarm of 1874 spread from the Rockies into western Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, and from Canada all the way down to central Texas, just north of Austin. They moved from north to south, devastating Kansas and Nebraska. 
The devastation in remote areas where settlers had little food were extreme, leaving the pioneers scrambling to try and grow more food before the winter came. The swarm was so large that it covered an area equal to the area of Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Vermont combined. All in all, it was 110 miles wide and 1,800 miles long. As the summer started to end and the colder nights of the fall swept into America, the swarms would land on railroad tracks that retained some heat from the sun. They would cover the tracks so thickly that trains would derail and be unable to stop on the slippery, kind of greasy mess of bodies. To try and fight the locusts, settlers would fire shotguns into the swarms, explode kegs of dynamite, light fires, and throw handheld bombs, but that did very little. As they stood and shot round after round of birdshot into the clouds of bugs, a hole would appear in the sky where the pellets flew, and then immediately the sky would again turn black. One farmer tried to halt the invasion by digging a trench around his land and filling it with sticks and leaves, setting it on fire just as the locusts flew towards his fields. The fire quickly spread in a ring around his land, but the sheer mass of insects smothered the flames before eating everything on the farm. In the end, all defenses failed against the sheer number of locusts. All of the food was gone, food that the people needed. Only one in ten families had enough provisions to survive, and so most families had no choice but to abandon their land and return east to cities where they could survive. Those that did stay on their farms tried to survive by hunting and catching what game they could, and that proved harder than they thought, as all of the animals had also fled the area because the locusts had eaten their food as well. A report written in the St. Louis Republican newspaper wrote, We have seen within the past week families which had not a meal in their house, families that had nothing to eat save what their neighbors gave them and from what game could be caught in a trap since last fall. In one case, a family of six died within six days of each other from want of food to keep body and soul together. From present indications, the future four months will make many graves marked with a simple piece of wood with the inscription starved to death painted on it. Some desperate people survived by gathering discarded buffalo bones from the prairie and hauling them to their railroad hub and selling them for $4 per ton. Buffalo horns fetched up to $8 per ton. While thousands were dying from hunger, more and more were growing weak. One man, Charles Valentin Riley, a Missouri state entomologist, noticed that livestock were eating the bugs as fast as they were landing, and he decided to try eating them. He ripped off the wings and legs and fried the grasshoppers in butter, noting that they had a pleasing nutty flavor. He published a paper suggesting that by eating the bugs, people could feed themselves and also hurt the number of locusts, and settlers took to putting fried locusts on pretty much everything. They put them in soups, they grilled them, they crisped them up and sprinkled salt and pepper on them, which made them taste like crawfish. For those who did start eating the remaining locusts, they were able to survive, but thousands of people found the concept disgusting and that they would rather die of starvation rather than eat an insect, and so they usually died. The following year, the biggest fear was another swarm being born from the eggs that were laid into the ground. The fear was so strong that the government in Kansas passed a Grasshopper Act requiring all able-bodied men between the ages of 16 and 60 to work for two days a week eliminating locusts at hatching time or face a $10 fine. The state of Missouri offered a bounty of $1 per bushel of dead locusts collected in March, 50 cents a bushel in April, a quarter a bushel in May, and a dime a bushel in June. By the turn of the 20th century, the Rocky Mountain locust was all but extinct. 
The eradication efforts of settlers in the Midwest had been so severe that the population was completely wiped out. The last known Rocky Mountain grasshopper was seen in Canada in 1902. You may be thinking that locust swarms are a thing of the past, that they don't happen. But that's not true. Every year, Africa is still threatened by swarms of the insects, and this year is one of the worst on record. Right now, a swarm the size of Manhattan is tearing through East Africa, destroying crops and livelihoods. Modern methods of battling against the swarms are a bit more advanced than shooting a shotgun into the air, and the UN is sending dozens of crop dusters filled with insect-killing chemicals into the swarms trying their best to eradicate the threat. But this year, it's different. There are too many of them. Because the planet is warmer than it has ever been, and drier than it has ever been, the two perfect conditions for locusts to cluster together into tight groups and slowly turn into the endlessly hungry zombies sent to destroy. The devastation that a locust swarm can have on your food and our lives is severe. If a swarm the size of the one that was in the past was ever to return to North America, we would all be in a lot of trouble. Swarms could disable power lines, cover cell towers, get into our water supplies, cause complete havoc to our modern lives. Now you're thinking right now that thankfully the Rocky Mountain locust is extinct. And thankfully we won't have to worry about that and really add to the year 2020 sucking even more. But right now as more and more of the Rocky Mountains start to melt from global warming, scientists are climbing the glaciers. They are scaling these melting mountains of ice because hidden inside them are Rocky Mountain locusts. Locusts that laid eggs a long time ago and that have been buried, frozen in place, waiting to thaw. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark. I want to thank everyone again for writing in to me over the last little while. It's really meant a lot. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. As always with this podcast, I seem to find that there's a Bob Dylan song about everything. And so that's the music that's going to be closing us out. So until next time, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. Judges were talking.